Hello and welcome to the Investment Week podcast, where we analyse the biggest investment news stories and speak to leading investors about the most important issues on their minds. I'm your host, Anna Fedorova. I am the Deputy News Editor of Investment Week. Investment Week has been the premier publication serving professional investors in the UK since 1995. You can find out more about us by visiting www.investmentweek.co.uk. Today, we're going to be talking about the challenges faced by UK equity income funds in trying to comply with the Investment Association's rules for the sector, which state that they must produce a yield equivalent to 110% of that of the FTSE All Share Index over a three-year rolling period. The debate was reignited recently when Schroeder's top-performing UK equity income fund, managed by Nick Kerridge and Kevin Murphy, became the latest casualty of the strict rules, having moved to the UK oil company sector. Schroders at the time called for the Investment Association to rethink its approach to the sector. But how can this situation be resolved? Joining me in the studio to talk about this is Richard Roma Lee, Managing Director at Square Mile Investment Consulting and Research. Thank you for joining me, Richard. So firstly, why are UK equity income managers struggling so much to achieve these targets? There are a couple of things happening in the UK equity income market, which from time to time present a challenge to investment managers, particularly with how they categorise the funds. The first, and this is pertinent in the case of Schroders, is if a fund experiences strong performance, strong capital performance in particular, the result is that the yield of the fund will drop. And that's just simple maths. And in the case of the Schroder Income Fund, three years ago, the fund was yielding 3.7%. That's a significant premium to the yield on the UK market. Over the last three years, that fund has returned 63%. The sector has returned just short of 50%, and the all-share index has returned just short of 40%. So the fund, over the last three years, has outperformed the all-share by more than half as much again. It's a really, really strong capital performance, and that's had the impact of bringing the yield on the fund down. And because the yield is calculated on an historic basis, a historic three-year basis, that's dropped below what the IA require for the sector and therefore the fund has been pushed out. Interestingly, if you look at the objective of the Schroeder Income Fund, that's to generate a total return, so that's income and capital, of 2% over the all-share index over rolling longer-term periods, the fund has delivered that objective. It also has an objective of growing its dividend over time. Not at the expense of capital performance, but just over the longer term. And again, if you look at the last three years, the dividend in 2012 per share was 198p, 2013 220p, and 2014 254p. So the dividend has increased, the capital performance has done what it says, and Schroders has been a victim of his own Mm. success. The second challenge for investors is that the UK equity market, as is well known, is skewed, it's dominated by a number of large companies and large sectors. And in fact, over half of the income paid by companies in the UK comes from 10 companies. So again, if investors or fund managers are not interested in those companies, they think they're too expensive, they think the dividend is not sustainable and so on, which is quite often the case, then they will struggle to make up the extra yield or they can struggle to make up the extra yield or income by avoiding such businesses. In your opinion, then, should the Investment Association reform the sector? This is a debate which rages on and on, and um, the Schroeder Income Fund is by no means 
an isolated incident. In the past, the Invesco Perpetual High Income and Income Funds have suffered the same fate too, whilst at the same time delivering very strong returns to their, their investors. The trouble with sector classification is, however you draw the rules, uh, funds are going to fall foul of them from time to time. And to that extent, I think it's important to consider the purpose of the sectors. And in the IA's words, the purpose of the sectors is to point people broadly in the right direction and to enable them to make comparisons. But therein lies the rub. Broadly doesn't mean exactly. And we think there's no substitute for looking at each fund and assessing it by its own objectives and whether or not it delivers them. And that's really important when considering the needs of investors because they can't buy sectors. They don't even understand what mm. sectors are, but they do understand objectives from individual funds. The IA, I have sympathy with the IA. It's a difficult challenge. And however they decide to do it, uh, it will cause angst uh, amongst various peoples. So in this instance, they don't do a bad job. What I would say, though, is that for the UK equity income sector, the requirements are backward looking. So that makes it slightly mm. different, difficult. So three years ago, the Schroeder Income Fund did have, well, was offering a yield in excess of 110% of the market. Since then, it's grown its income, it's delivered fantastic returns, but now it doesn't meet the sector requirements. Now, turning away from that particular sector, the Investment Association has had a lot on its plate recently in general, with investors also calling for an overhaul of the ever-growing unclassified sector. So does that mean that the concept of sectors is perhaps becoming redundant completely as the investment landscape changes? I don't think the concept of sectors is becoming completely redundant. And indeed, people need some guidance, I believe, in where to look for appropriate funds. Having said that, the IA faces an enormous challenge in considering the different factors that help classify funds. And specifically, and they've always done this quite well, what outcome are they offering? Is it capital growth? Is it income? And more recently, capital preservation or in protection against inflation. And the IA have always had income and growth classification sitting above their sectors. It's just that they haven't been widely used in the past. There are different dimensions that need to be considered. So one is what's the outcome being offered? And we're seeing an increasing number of capital preservation and income funds mm. being launched, especially at the moment. The second is the geography. The third is the asset class. And the fourth, and this is specific to the unclassified sector in particular, is risk. Because what we've seen, particularly since the financial crisis, is we've seen a great swath of risk-targeted funds being launched. Mm. And they don't fit naturally in the IA's sectors. So I think it's well versed that the IA is consulting the industry as to how it should deal with this. Um, but its task is difficult because it's, there are so many different things to consider. Great. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you. Now we have an interview with Robert Marshall Lee, investment leader at Emerging Markets and Asian Equities team at Newton Investment Management, who now oversees the management of the flagship Newton Asian Income Fund following the departure of previous manager Jason Pitcock in May. Now, Robert, I'd like to talk to you about Emerging Markets. What have you noticed in terms of sentiment towards the asset class uh, recently? People are really wrestling with a couple of things. And firstly, it's the asset allocation decision. Do they want to be in emerging markets or not? You know, people have seen US equities doing very well. They're looking for, for growth, capital appreciation, and aware about the differences in valuations. Um, but the reality is it's a very differentiated outlook. So they're, they're struggling with that. Um, from our point, as a very active manager, we can go very long in the, the attractive parts of the, the emerging markets and avoid the ugly bits 
um, you know, such as Brazil is going to have a very difficult outlook for the next couple of years. So we just don't need to have any, any assets there. Um, the other thing is obviously U.S. rate rises, the yield environment there, what that means for emerging markets and capital flows. And again, the reality is it's, it depends on the, the strength of the underlying economies um, and the, the current accounts, the, the terms of trade with commodities. Uh, and some economies are very vulnerable uh, as part of that, um, and some are actually very robust. And we've seen that playing out over the last 12 months. You've mentioned the ugly parts of the, um, of the emerging market universe, um, but where exactly are you seeing the opportunities at the moment? The uh, probably the the biggest position for us is in India. Um, we're twenty one percent overweight, I think, currently. So close to thirty percent of our portfolio, uh, and that's not trading on some momentum or anything. It's it's really where we see the the, um, the potential value creation over the next five years. We think it's going to be the best uh, equity market in the world in real hard currency terms over the next five years, and we reflect that with some great companies. Um, again, it it comes down to this differentiation, real strong underlying growth there from a low base. Now. The uh, the contrast of that is obviously somewhere like Brazil, where we see a, a big correction, but there are a lot of other emerging markets in the, in the same boat. Uh, on a more sector-specific side of things, we're broadly avoiding commodities, but we find really fantastic growth opportunities in, still in internet companies. Uh, they've done very well, but we see a huge uh, growth path ahead. And, and when we're investing in China, that's exactly where we're focusing our efforts in companies um, in China. And speaking about China, um, how much of a difficulty does that pose for you as an investment manager at the moment with all the negative news around it? It's, a, it's an interesting one because uh, the market's been ramping very, very rapidly, led by a lot of liquidity into the market. Um, and it's, uh, it's difficult because the, the Chinese economy is rebalancing to, you know, away from investment-led growth, too much credit towards a more balanced consumer economy. Uh, and that's very difficult for certain parts of the economy, but very good for other parts. So even though we're probably at the bearish end of Chinese GDP assumptions over the next few years, um, within that we found some fantastic growth areas in the, in the internet space, in the consumer space, in healthcare. Uh, at the same time as we're we're happy to avoid the banks, which have actually been leading the recent stock market rally, uh, the insurance companies, etc., where we don't see very good quality, and we're worried about the underlying fundamentals. Thank you very much, Robert. time for our news segment where we discuss some of the stories which have been making headlines lately and what they might mean for investors. I'm joined by Investment Week's asset management correspondent Alice Rigby. Thanks for joining Alice. Now the first story that we're going to discuss is the recent events in China. Um, Now Alice what has been happening in China recently and what does it mean for markets? Well really this is the end of the raging bull market in China. We've seen the index move 100% higher on a 12-month view uh, in the Mm. the period to June but then markets started to tumble and they really did tumble. In the month to July the 8th they fell by 32%. So really we have seen um, a a real damaging of a Chinese market. Um, The third biggest daily points fall in the Shanghai Composite Index history happened earlier in the month um, so really damaging time there what's been happening as a result is that the government has slowed down its process of reducing its intervention in the markets and instead has ramped that up in a bid to stop them dropping um, the most recent thing that's happened is that 17 of the country's state banks have lent 200 billion dollars to the China Securities Finance Corporation, Mm. which uh, loans to brokerages to help stock investors. So really that's, um, again, bid to stop public sentiment falling and and panic sentiment rising. 
They've also accused large institutional investors, including large Western banks, of deliberately damaging the markets. And 14,000 companies have now suspended trading their shares to counteract panic sellings. IPOs have been suspended. It's really a massive deal. It's a real change in the markets. And as a result, investors in their market are being damaged. So Chinese ETFs are in massive price swings and valuation gaps and it's further exacerbated the problem for commodities which of course have already been damaged by slowing growth in China over the last couple of years so China's still the biggest importer of commodities but this is a could have a contagion effect on its growth and it's it's not been a good time for that asset class in general so could this actually be a buying opportunity for Chinese stocks and, and stocks related to this situation some investors do seem to think so. So uh, the analyst team at Carmignac say that many stocks could actually benefit from a fundamental change in the Chinese economy and sort of society's attitude to the markets. And Newberger Berman's Frank Yao called the conditions a wonderful opportunity to add more to our holdings. So he mm. clearly agrees. Matthew Zager is also positive on what's been happening, saying that strong consumer numbers and continuing government investment in sort of soft infrastructure infrastructure are positive underlying factors in China. However, GAM's investment director Michael Lai said that poor government policy had helped actually prompt the cat crash and that it is impossible to hedge against future poor policy decisions, making China a fundamentally difficult market to invest in. AXA's senior economist Aidan Yao agreed with that sentiment, saying that the slump could prompt a confidence shock to the government's credibility, recommending investors take profits in Asia more broadly and reduce their weighting to neutral because of the potential for contagion. Now, China hasn't been the only issue on investors' minds recently. We've also um, seen markets really struggle with uh, liquidity in the in the bond markets. So, um, why is bond liquidity such a concern at the moment, Alice? Well, over the last six months or so, we've seen really fluctuating and ultimately spiking yields um, across the world, prompting massive sell-offs in the bond market. So the most notable cases, of course, German bonds, which Mm. briefly fell to a negative yield earlier this year. So really, you know, it's been a a bad time for fixed income investors. And those issues have prompted significant redemptions. So since the end of April, bond markets have seen over 640 billion dollars mm. in outflows it's a significant amount liquidity is such concern that some of the biggest investors in the sector have already spoken out about their concerns one of those is bill gross he of course ran the largest fixed income fund in the world at pimco for over a decade and he said that bond liquidity problems scare the hell out of him so clearly <laughs> investors are nervous yeah in the us the Securities exchange commission was so concerned it recommended uh tight supervision over how asset managers deal with invested redemptions that we've seen throughout the process um, in the fixed income markets. And and so some of the largest funds in the world have been impacted by this sell-off. M&G's Optimal Income Fund saw its reign as the UK's best-selling retail fund come to a really sudden end. Investors pulled £1.5 billion from it in April and May. So uh, definitely having an effect on the industry. And what have asset managers themselves been doing or recommending to deal with the issue? 
the most forceful response came from the world's biggest asset manager, BlackRock, um, in mid-July. It released a report proposing a raft of reforms. These included new trading protocols, which will make the fixed income market similar to the way that equities are traded, seeing buy and sell orders matched up. It also proposed revisions to the way that trades are reported to the market, mm. so particularly larger trades being delayed to the end of mm. the day. And in June, Aberdeen said it was utilising derivatives and increasing the overseas investment capacity of its funds in a bid to counteract the problem. It's also opened a $500 million credit line to meet redemptions alongside $1 billion in cash it had already set aside to meet those. And it's increased its funds borrowing capabilities. So um, they're definitely giving it a go. So so both issues are quite quite a big deal for the market and for investors at the moment. And um, they're both still going on. So we will see how these develop. Thank you very much, Alice. That's all we have time for today. We would love to hear your comments and ideas for future podcasts if there are any particular topics you would like us to cover. You can contact me via email at anna.fedorova, that's spelled F-E-D-O-R-O-V-A, at incisivemedia.com. Thank you for listening.